welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I am very pleased to be here with Chris Parsons, a senior research associate at the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Regular listeners will remember him from only a few podcast episodes ago, where he came on to share his thoughts about the National Cyber Threat Assessment by the Cyber Centre. Today, however, I've asked Chris to speak about his own report, published in December 2020, titled Huawei and 5G, clarifying the Canadian equities and charting a strategic path forward. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the first thing I just wanted to say was congratulations on writing this report. I think Huawei is in so many ways a bit of a Rorschach test in the sense that so many of of Canada's foreign policy issues seem to be wrapped up in this company, whether it is how we're dealing with technology, our our relations with other countries, how we deal bilaterally with China, just so much. And we hear, you know, a story about it in the news every week. So you really have set everything out. I think there is to know about Huawei in this report. It's accessible for listeners. There's definitely going to be a link on our website as well as in the podcast notes. So I'd highly recommend that you read it. But what I really want to know is why you decided to write this report and who it's for. Yeah. So first, let me thank you for for your kind words. It, It was about two years in development to write this top to bottom. So a lot of time has gone into it. Now, as to why, I I think that it actually is exactly to touch on the reasons you just discussed. Huawei has become almost a term that is used in domestic and international media to conjoin everything from intellectual property to cybersecurity to espionage to intelligence legislation and counterintelligence legislation in China, to predatory lending, to, I mean, it's almost become everything. And what I had been finding is that we were were moving into discussions in Canada where all of these issues were overlapping and being elided in public discussions. And this especially came into uh, focus as 5G became, you know, the thing that was about to happen. And so I had the opportunity to, to, you know, work through and try and pull apart discrete elements of what the quote-unquote Huawei problem is, if if it is in fact a problem. And I I have problems with that very framing, to be quite honest. And then tease through, based on actual open source facts and evidence, what exactly is the state of play in any of these issues? And they're interlinked. But nonetheless... I think when we do that, it becomes apparent that like, oh, okay, so there's an intellectual property problem, or there may be, but we can think about that as an intellectual property sort of bucket. And okay, it's related a little bit to commercial espionage, but how exactly is it actually done? Not just sort of sort of lazy aspersions that somehow this, this Chinese mega corporation, like the, the idea is they're stealing everything and they're not. They are one of the most invested companies in research and development in the world. And so just trying to go through and explain like how many of these are issues pertaining to Huawei and how many of these are actually issues pertaining to the government of China. And if Huawei were located out of Spain, how many of these problems would exist and how many of them would go to the wayside because we don't look at the Spanish government the same way that we happen to look at the Chinese government. That's really interesting because for me, the, it's this disaggregation of the Huawei problem that really makes this report valuable. You've kind of broken it down into the basically the intellectual property issues 
monopoly and trade concerns, technological concerns, and, and the way you even broke that section down was really interesting. Uh, and then basically the politics, the geopolitics in China's rule by law, and then you kind of get into some of the balancing acts. So I was wondering maybe if we could give a, a small Coles Notes version of the report to the crowd, appreciating there is a lot in here, and I do recommend that they read it for themselves. But the first one you, you really tackle is this intellectual property and commercial espionage concern. And what you highlight in the report is all of these rumors that Huawei or the Chinese government was able to hack into Nortel and it stole all the intellectual property. And another, there's been a lot of media reporting about other companies where this has happened to as well. And you're kind of a little bit skeptical of this. There's a lot of smoke, but no fire per se, on this particular file. But then, as you say, there's other issues here with regards to how universities and, and other kind of intellectual property arrangements are, are being made. So, you know, I should start by saying everything, I mean, it's an academic report. So, and it is fastidiously footnoted, as anyone who reads this will realize. And it's after um, my own heart. I love it. It's great. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just want to recognize that if there's like secret sauce somewhere that, that someone happens to be sitting on that isn't in public domain, Maybe it counters a lot of my, my points, but it's not public. And so I, you know, I can't lean on non-public attribution for, for materials. So I, one of the, the issues that's been brought up pretty prominently with Huawei is intellectual property. And on the one hand, it is, you know, they have inappropriately acquired some materials. And indeed, there have been litigation processes that, that have come up, many of which have been settled out of court and others that are still ongoing. And so what that's showcased is that Huawei, frankly, is like a lot of other companies and that they are often chasing or trying to reverse or trying to understand their competitors' intellectual property systems. I don't make an analysis in this to like compare them to Ericsson or Nokia or Samsung or Cisco or anyone like that. But there is, there have been instances where it has been demonstrated that indeed they have inappropriately acquired or used intellectual property where they're alleged to have done so. But that's a pretty common issue. And are there ways of addressing it? Probably, and many of those are just through a court system. Where we start getting into what I think are increasingly hot areas or areas where people are looking into in Canada is what exactly is the relationship between Huawei and the university system? And, and I'll just for the interest of disclosure, the University of Toronto is one of the universities that has received funding uh, from Huawei. I, don't know exactly where it is. No one from the University of Toronto has ever talked to me about Huawei, um, told me not to say anything, but, but just upfront, you know, the University of Toronto is one of the bene beneficiaries of this. And there are these concerns about like, what exactly are the contracts like? What is the, the intellectual property licensing back and forth? And then there's sort of two things that are going on. One, you have, there, are, there have been, you know, defensive briefings that have been provided by the CSIS to university presidents to say like, hey, you're not doing anything illegal, but be mindful, which I have some questions about the utility of that. And moreover, there's nothing wrong with what Huawei is doing. There are no laws being broken. There's, there's no evidence of, of malfeasance or wrongdoing. And I think this is one of those areas where, you know, I've, I've spoken with some members of parliament and they've said, well, this has to stop. And the immediate question is, okay, well, what has to stop? What are the grounds on which it stops? And what is going to be the solution to providing Canadian researchers with access to the funding, to the research labs, to the data, to, to the other things that really do come when you partner with large companies, whether it be Huawei or whether it be Intel or whether it be Microsoft, like all of these companies have investments in our university system. And so I think 
when we start talking about the university system, it's A, what are we actually concerned about, which is often sort of spookily stated without clarity. And I'm not saying that there might not be real things to talk about, but I, I think that if the government of Canada has concerns, they need to actually be clear about what they are. Is it that there are concerns about dual use technology? So the, the, the systems and tools that Canadian academic researchers are developing around artificial intelligence, vision technologies, 5G, you know, whatever it happens to be, could have uses that, are, that, that the government of Canada sees as problematic. That's plausible and possible. Then what are we going to do? But it has to be a very clear directed discussion and to the best of my knowledge, that really hasn't been what we've enjoyed in the university system. Sometimes us in the universities, we complain about the government not being transparent, but the universities sometimes aren't particularly transparent either. Noting that both of us work for universities and perhaps enough say on that. I, I think it's one of those areas where, you know, in the United States, there is a protocol and process for, for dealing with sensitive technologies that has largely been built by university systems themselves, right? And it's based on information that's shared by government. We could mimic or replicate that in Canada. That's a real option. But in order to do that, I think that the actual concerns need to be better stated, better expressed. And currently, we just haven't really seen that. It, it should not be the case where you need to file access to information requests to get highly redacted briefing notes that are going to your universities to understand what the problems may or may not be. Like that's just not the way of building transparency as far as I'm concerned in this. But like within the intellectual property discussion, there's also sort of this overlap of commercial espionage, right? So we know that operators that are either employed by the Chinese government or that are adjacent to the Chinese government are routinely involved in commercial espionage. Like this is not a, a hidden or secret fact. And so one of the things that often has come up, especially in American media, to be honest, is that, you know, somehow the Chinese government is extracting information. They then walk it over to Huawei, Huawei builds it into their systems, and off we go. And to date, there is no open source information that I can find anywhere where that has taken place. Now, is that to say it hasn't? I, 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 can't, make that, I can't make that assertion. But there is nothing that you can put your finger on to say, aha, this is going on. And so this is another situation where there's one set of issues where it's a company operating out of China. What are the implications there? But they're actually separate from the Chinese government itself by all public accounts. And so we need to avoid, to my mind, conjoining what are the intellectual property concerns versus commercial espionage. And again, I think that we just need to see our legislators right now, especially the committee that's looking at Canadian and Chinese uh, relations, to really carefully think through that kind of an issue to make clear what is a company issue, what is a how the government of Canada treats intellectual property writ large issue, and then what is a Chinese espionage issue. Because each of those are different buckets and the debate is impoverished when they are sort of lazily blurred together. I mean, I think that's such an interesting comment in perspective. And one of the things I really did enjoy in the report was you, again, trying to disaggregate these issues. One of the things I sometimes think is that we can talk a lot about threats in this country, but we don't talk a lot about national interest. So for example, there may be activities you see that's perfectly legal, but it may in the end not be in our national interest. And I think perhaps when our national security intelligence services kind of cross from threat to discussions about interest, they, they kind of maybe clam up a bit. We don't quite have the vocabulary for economic national security interests in this country. 
even I think if we wanted to call it that, I mean, a lot of people would are, are concerned about the securitization of the economy and things like this. And that's a perfectly valid discussion. But I think that actually, if I may, folds over really well into the second thing that you raised, which is concerns about monopoly and trade concerns. The idea that Huawei engages in uncompetitive practices that effectively undermine competition and they're all their competitors. And again, you get to this point where you're like, well, is it a national security threat? Mm, we have a debate about that. But then is it something that's in our interest? Yeah, I, I really agree with your national interest versus national security. I think it's a good overlay or overlay. Just before I touch on this, I'll actually use that to point to the intellectual property a bit just for one last piece. Oh, please. So, you know, it, it is probably in Canada's national interests to get better at figuring out how to develop and commercialize our own intellectual property. So how might we do that? The government of Canada might say, okay, we have some issues with certain foreign companies, and it could be any number of companies, frankly, it's not just Huawei. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pour money into NSERC, so the national research funds that, that go to scientists, or put more money into SHRP, or there's all sorts of options that might come up. We might give tax incentives to Canadian businesses to pour money into basic research in the university. Like there's lots of different options that we could go through if we decide it is actually in Canada's national interest to become competitive or more competitive or to build up our intellectual property or to commercialize in, say, artificial intelligence, where we're leaders, or any number of other areas where we are leaders. That isn't inherently a national security issue. And I think that we run a risk of when we do attach national security to national interests, it becomes spooky. And it doesn't need to be. Like, this is something that, you know, I said can be dealing with. And it doesn't need to be like in a black box with top secret on, on the letterhead. Like, this can just be a national policy. But we have to, as I'm sure we'll talk towards the end, build a strategy as opposed to a series of disconnected tactics. I think that was a spoiler alert. And when it comes to monopoly of trade, I, I, Huawei has had a number of advantages, which I would point out we have provided to companies like Bombardier in the past, which is, you know, there are a huge number of moats that have been built up when Huawei is a relatively uh, young company, they did enjoy grants and, and subsidies from the state, which is pretty normal in any country that's trying to build up their high-tech community or, or any advanced manufacturing capability. Now, that has persisted in some ways that has certainly raised some eyebrows in the sense that even to this date, it's, it's quite challenging to sell into the Chinese marketplace if you're a telecommunications company. So like Ericsson or Samsung or someone like that selling like backbone equipment. And there are national security reasons for that. Everyone remembers the Edward Snowden leaks and, and Cisco is, is somewhat a sketchy <laughs> to be used in, in China for, for good reasons, frankly. Same with Juniper and any number of others that were found to be deliberately or, or not deliberately assisting with the NSA and the other Five Eyes countries. But nonetheless, there's a trade barrier. With it. So China's got a huge customer base. And you know that at least you know 70% of all Chinese telecom equipment is going to be purchased from domestic Chinese companies. That is a huge amount of money that they can enjoy. So what we've seen is as, as Huawei was, was truly becoming ascendant, other Western companies who, who were able to, were at the time charging substantially more money, you had to pay more funds for customization, for support. Huawei came in and they were able to offer a very high quality product um, at a lower cost with more servicing options. And so that meant that places like Nortel, were, were, which were already very deeply challenged companies bureaucratically, setting aside the concerns that their intellectual property may have been walking out the front and back and side doors, they were bureaucratically and financially in hard shapes. And so, you know, we're in this situation where Huawei was able to expand rapidly, they invested massively in research and development. So not only were they competitive, but they kept getting more and more competitive. 
And there were also a number of financial incentives that the Chinese government backstop. And so it was possible to get relatively low interest loans or the number that we're actually taking advantage of, that isn't public knowledge at the moment. But nonetheless, you could get relatively affordable loans from the Chinese government to buy Huawei equipment, which is also something that is done by other Western countries when we are trying to get foreign countries to buy our product. It just worked out really well in the way that Huawei operated. And they recognized that it would be very difficult to immediately move into some of the Western markets. And so they sort of went through the periphery and then they demonstrated at key strategic European markets that, oh, it actually worked. And they continued to flood into the marketplace. So there have been some concerns. So there's been uh, issues raised um, by both the Europeans and by the Indian government about some of the trading practices pertaining to Huawei being um, unfair and in violation of either anti-dumping laws or, or other international regulations. But they, they have not risen by like blackmailing engineers to buy Huawei equipment. They've risen because they've been an effectively, there have been a very effective business in advancing their interests with some state support that frankly happens along the time. Now, that doesn't mean that all that state support is entirely fine, but it means that we have mechanisms that are outside the national security lens, 100% out of it more or less, to assess it. We can go to the WTO, we can go to multilateral or bilateral trading environments. We can make assessments to see, is this okay? And then as, as we may touch in a second, there are security concerns that have come up only because they have, their products are so dominant. And as has been found by, by UK information assurance processes, there have been some serious concerns found in the technical security they're associated with those products. So you raised this point about trade. What do you think that Canada could be doing, should be doing? Like, what are the main issues here? Yeah, so Huawei has been very effective in moving the markets, as I've said. And I think one of the concerns, and this is not a Huawei concern so much as it is a Chinese government concern, but as companies in countries around the world, including you know, some of our own telecoms and with the 4G and earlier networks in Canada, as they have adopted Huawei products, that potentially gives the Chinese government leverage in its negotiations with the government of Canada. So let's say a company has adopted Huawei, they're gonna use Huawei in their 5G infrastructures and then probably in their 6G infrastructures and so on and so forth. Well, if that country, be it Canada or Denmark or somewhere else, gets into a tiff with China, which seems to be increasingly likely given the, the way that China is presenting itself internationally on the international stage, then China could say, okay, Huawei is not permitted to provide you with software updates. We're going to prevent uh, them from selling equipment to upgrade to the next standard or things of that nature. Or alternately, given that there's a bunch of loans that are under signed in part, you know, one, one or two steps removed by the Chinese government to say, well, the loan percentages are going up when we renew the loans and that'll have an impact on your ability to operate as a private company. And oh, by the way, that'll have an impact on your economic competitiveness as a country. So I think that like the concerns are as much, they've been very successful and as private companies have done, especially you know, private companies that are publicly traded, have done the thing which has been for their shareholders, which is to acquire products at the lowest capital cost, the highest efficiency. It does have the prospect of giving China an ability to sort of maneuver countries around to adopt more China-friendly policies. Now that is within the domain of national security. That is in the domain of statecraft. 
And so this is one of those areas where there's one part of this issue, the way that China has operated, which is a trading issue, and the way that um, the business has operated, which you know isn't necessarily a national security issue, really, but gives rise to statecraft and national security concerns because they have been successful in the development of their business. Right. And, and I guess that's the nerdy part of me, which finds that so interesting is like having to balance that out. You're trying to find, well, what is the national security risk in the larger issue, which may also just be about interest, but also just might be about larger trading issues as well. But I, if I may, I'd like to then move on to the next element of concern. And I think this is the one where I think most of the media attention has been been, but to me is actually perhaps one of the areas where I think there may be the most potential for mitigation, which is the technical side of it. We always hear about the the technical risks of Huawei equipment, and you have usefully broken this down as well into kind of the incidental technical vulnerabilities, which in my brain would explain as the mistakes due to either incompetence or negligence in the way that, you know, Huawei equipment is built and, and programmed and supported. As But then you have the more concerning, which would be state-compelled technical vulnerabilities. And this would be where there would be some kind of requirement by the Chinese government to put a backdoor in either when building it, so basically creating a vulnerability in the firmware, I believe you call it, or alternatively, once a product is up and running, and because 5G will be software-defined networks, to perhaps be able to create some kind of vulnerability in the software once these networks are in fact deployed. So uh, can you walk us through these kind of, you know, different kinds of technical vulnerabilities? And I'd be interested in your assessment as to whether or not you feel like maybe some of the coverage of this is is overblown without trying to load the question. Yeah, so I, I, I mean... Technical security concerns, I think, are the the item that is most exciting to people, right? So this is where they think like, you know, some spy somewhere in, you know, China or somewhere else is going to hit a button and then like all of our cars are going to stop running or, you know, some sort of like sci-fi-ish sort of thing. And, and, not, and not to say that like some of those concerns, I mean, they may be, you know, valid in certain narrow conditions. But I think more broadly, what we need to appreciate is that every piece of equipment we use, whether it is built by Apple, Samsung, Huawei, Nokia, you know, look around your home. <laughs> there are problems in the way that it has been developed. And, and there's actually the way that I, I think of these are these are normal accidents. You know, we're ta- these code bases are truly epically large. And so when you're talking about increasingly sophisticated products, mistakes are made. And that's why we get patches for every piece of software, every piece of hardware that supports updates, we get them on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, right? So that doesn't mean that they're not significant, right? You know, just a day or two ago, there was one of the highest possible vulnerabilities in virtualization software that's used around the world. That was not intentional, but it is a devastating vulnerability. When we look at SolarWinds, that was, an, that was not a deliberate state-planned vulnerability. That happens to have been an incidental vulnerability that the Russians and seemingly the Chinese, and we'll see who else, managed to find and, and use to burrow into sensitive systems. So incidental technical vulnerabilities are the most prominent kinds of vulnerabilities that exist in our systems to this date. And we would benefit, as I argue in the report, of looking at all our infrastructure providers with a degree of skepticism. And so we know that there are a large number of challenges that arise in Huawei's routing equipment for for their telecommunications providers. Now, why do we know that? We know that because in the UK, they have an annual public audit that produces a public report that explains 
This, these are the problems that we have found in Huawei products. It is important to note and underscore and boldface and put arrows around that in no instance has the UK government once said, oh, this, this vulnerability was compelled. These are all incidental vulnerabilities. These are all pretty serious and speak to some concerns in the security culture at Huawei, but they aren't a situation where, you know, you have Chinese officers for the government sitting beside, sitting on a hardware bench or sitting, you know, right behind someone who's building firmware or the, the operating system upon which Huawei routers operate and say, okay, we need to put this line. That just hasn't happened by any of the public assessments to date, which doesn't make those vulnerabilities any less serious. But we don't talk about those nearly as much just because we're so used to vulnerabilities in all of our stuff all the time being problematic a lot of the attention is focused on state compelled technical vulnerabilities. And this is where quite often you see, you know, appropriate references to Chinese national security law, their intelligence law, their counterintelligence law. And, and people, I think, reasonably looking at those pieces of legislation and saying, well, this would allow them to force modifications in Huawei equipment or ZTE equipment or Xiaomi equipment or, or, or frankly, Western hardware that is also manufactured in China and is sold into us. So, I would note that most of our iPhones are produced in China. So it, it, there are concerns there. There are legitimate concerns that their law permits a pretty broad range of motion for the Chinese government to potentially force changes. Now, what could that do? That could have all the, all the concerning impacts that you know, are sort of breathlessly spoken about in the media, you know, our cars turning off. But as or more likely, it is a, a concern where if, you, if there's a company located in China, so Huawei is the example in this situation, and a product is being sold into a Rogers network. And they're like, okay, we actually don't have a large number of implants, or we would like to be able to pre-position to implant within that network. And so if there's this vulnerability that we know we can take advantage of, all right, that's helpful for, for gaining entry into, into the network. So is that a concern? Sure, it's a perfectly reasonable concern. Similar to not just going into a telecommunications network, but also into a manufacturing network. So any of our defense uh, contractors who may purchase products that are designed in China or manufactured in China, that manufacturer knows it's going to go to say an Irving shipyard and there might be some real advantages to being able to penetrate or gain access into the Irving shipyard to figure out how our current shipbuilding processes are or are not working. So. Those are real concerns. And how can they be used more broadly? I think most worryingly, it's really for espionage, right? So were a foreign state to be using them, so the Chinese government or, you know, French or the Israelis, whoever finds the vulnerability first, you know, there's real concerns about espionage. And so that's the ability to penetrate into networks, to extract whatever is being sought after, either in a loud manner, which used to be sort of the, the way that Chinese operators operate, but has changed pretty substantially of late, or more quietly. So, you know, we all see these big data busts where, you know, X gigabytes of data have been lost, but, it, you know, it is as or more useful to slowly eat four megabytes of data over nine months so that no one ever knows what it is if those happen to be the signing keys to your operating system. So there's an espionage component. And then there's also sort of a pre-positioning ability. So, um, not necessarily planning on using it to, to have a deleterious impact on networks, but being ready in case something were to happen. So 
were Canada to get into an oppositional relationship with, or more oppositional relationship, I perhaps should say, with the Chinese government, then pressure could be brought to bear. But again, that the, the utility of these vulnerabilities are not utilities to Huawei. It isn't that Huawei wants to produce products that are going to cost them in the marketplace. If people think they sell cruddy products, they'll be less inclined to buy them or want to buy them at a lower price. Not great for business. So the concern is that the Chinese government or other governments are going to be able to exploit these vulnerabilities. And so again, we separate out what are the company issues? What are the company issues because they operate in China? And what are the China issues because China might exploit the vulnerabilities that they either find or have compelled into devices? So again, we get into this like situation where when we use the word Huawei and technical security, it actually has a bunch of different meanings and we need to start shading them down so that before we have any policy discussion, we actually are making policies or thinking about the issues in what I think is a more nuanced context. This is a point I often try to make with people. If somehow I could wave a magic wand and ban all the Huawei equipment in Canada, it wouldn't necessarily make us safer because all these vulnerabilities exist in all software. And if China wants that data, they can get it. So there is like, I think there is that false security that comes with the, this whole technical debate. And I think your disaggregation of that is particularly useful in this report. So let's talk about the mitigation here. And there, there has been a debate about this, I think a little bit quieter as to whether, you know, you can actually have a layered security approach to Huawei where you have, you know, many different checks. You've already mentioned the fact the UK has this testing center. Canada also has a testing center. It was kept very much under wraps in recent years. Uh, it does not produce any public reports as far as I'm aware uh, as to the vulnerabilities that are in fact found. But you know, can you introduce this kind of layer deep defense, I think sometimes they call it, or do we actually need to do a ban? What are you thinking in terms of mitigation here? Yeah, so what the way that I have looked at this is you can never remove, you can never get rid of all vulnerabilities short of going through just such insanely expensive like, like security processes in your code that like it'll never be produced or it'll cost so much that no one is willing to buy it at that price anymore. There's a reason why even the NSA buys stuff off the shelf these days. So I think information assurance is very much about raising the cost of deliberately inserting vulnerabilities and also getting better at finding vulnerabilities in existing devices. So what could that mean? So as you know, there are processes in existence right now for doing information assurance. And it's you know part of what the CFC does, frankly. So first, there is the Common Criteria Program in Canada, which we're in with a whole bunch of other countries, where we certify laboratories, and then they undertake formal assessments of the technology. So they look at the way it's designed and assess, like, does, does that make sense? If it operates in those ways, is it secure? And then there's like more substantive gradients where you actually get in, you like test the, test the metal and you see like, are you actually working the way that you logically say you should? So we do some of that, which provides some assurance, but it, it, it has its you know, upper bounds. There's a process that the CSE undertakes to assess certain technologies that are going into you know, critical infrastructure and sensitive environments in Canada. And as they note on their website, it has led to certain products being rejected from being entered into those infrastructure environments. And then we have the UK model, which I think is really the gold standard to be honest, where Huawei is responsible for funding the majority of the research lab that's doing the work. It's headed by someone from the, the GCHQ. 
And they produce these, these really helpful annual reports that explain what they found. And then they also work with telecommunications companies to identify like, do we need to patch you up? Is there a way of patching you up? What do we do? And I think that doesn't scale in the sense that, you know, Canada couldn't like look at Huawei, Sony, Ericsson, and, and just go through every piece of critical infrastructure that we're worried about. Like, that's not going to happen. There's only so many Canadians and there's a lot of companies. But we do have this handy Five Eyes network. And so if we could get our partners on board, it might be a little bit difficult with the Americans in some respects, but you know, Australia, New Zealand, UK is already doing it. We might even be able to expand it inside of the Five Eyes itself to you know, our, our continuing close allies. And then we all look at different companies and we produce similar kinds of reports. So maybe we focus on telecom equipment and the other stuff is just too big and so we can't do it. But I think it's one of the ways to go about it. And the other advantage would mean that you know, Huawei has been, you know, under a magnifying glass. We should be putting Ericsson, Juniper, Nokia, Samsung under the same lens because their equipment is in equally privileged environments or plan to go into equally privileged environments. And so we should be assessing that, not because I inherently think that the South Korean government is, you know, pressuring Samsung, but rather because it's likely there's a whole lot of incidental technical vulnerabilities. And if we can find them and patch them, then all of our networks are going to be a little bit secure. And the foreign signals intelligence community has really been able to thrive in certain ways because of the, the genuine in, insecurity. And there has been uh, substantially a biasing towards that because defense is hard and expensive and sort of miserable. But I think that we really do need to look at the internet and what is it for? Is the internet a space for states to be in sort of a cyber conflict of some sort, or is it a commons in which the citizens in each country should be able to, with relative degrees of safety or trust in their networks, do what they do online? And, and certainly at the Citizen Lab, we bias toward the human security model. And so we are much more aligned with, we need to make the internet as safe a space for everybody. And we need to focus on defense first because we're focusing on offense, frankly, just hasn't worked. We're no safer today than we were 10 years ago. In fact, given the number of devices that are out there, you can make the argument for a lot less safe than we were 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and none of this is to say that like the intelligence agencies have no role, right? So in the report, I spent some time explaining like there is a role for CSIS and it's an important role, right? Especially around human intelligence. Is it is it the case that, you know, operatives of foreign governments, including the Chinese government, are in some way trying to compel modifications to telecommunications systems? All right, we need we need to know that. We have to have understandings to what the financial relationships between Huawei and other, other countries and other companies are, just to understand who owns them, how can they be influenced. Those are all areas where CSIS fits pretty nice and square. And then if need be, of course, I have some concerns around it, but they do have disruption powers as well. And so there's a role for CSIS. Also in the case of the CSC, I mean, they are already involved in collecting foreign intelligence on Huawei. You know, this is not a, a, a huge secret and they should I think, be continuing I think our podcast is now, is now illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and their recipients from the, from the Americans and what the Americans are finding. So this is not a, this is normal behavior that we would expect from our signals intelligence agency. So I think the key thing is, is we should expect them to engage in operations and the mitigation of, of or the, the thing that the lab we focus on is we then need to make sure the groups like NSI COP, 
in CIRA, and other accountability and review bodies are able to look at that and make sure that what's going on is appropriate in, in, within the scope of Canadian law and within the scope of what is necessary and proportionate use of, of those powers. But they have a role in you know, making sure that in fact, the Chinese government or other governments aren't compelling modifications in Huawei equipment or, or anyone else's. It's, it's so interesting. I mean, I, when I was reading the mitigation, you're saying, well, if this is a threat, we should mitigate it. I'm like, we should be doing all this stuff anyways. Like, there's nothing here that, like, even if Huawei didn't exist, all of these things should exist. And I, I, I think that was that was really one of the things I took from this report. Like, we, why aren't we doing all this now? This just this makes a lot of sense. But I think, you know, we're kind of sliding into it. And I hope I'm not drawing too tenuous of a, of a connection here. But we are, I think, getting to something that I find really interesting here, which is the geopolitical aspect of it, which is in the section seven of your report, politics and, and rule by law. For me, the concern about Huawei again, has not always been so much technical, but about maybe more the economic national security or economic national interest and, and how you mitigate those concerns. But also the fact that, you know, China seems to have uh, certain laws in place and engage in certain behaviors that amplify the fact that Huawei is, is you know, possibly a national security threat. And an example of that would be the fact that, you know, in retaliation for Canada, arresting Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei. Two Canadians were taken hostage. And as you also point out, it wasn't just that. It was the fact that a number of Canadians who had their sentences in China were either sentenced to death or given much more harsh sentences for offenses that they had committed. Can Canada do business with a not state-owned enterprise, but a state champions company, I think would be a better description, where a state will take hostages on its behalf? Yeah, this is exactly the kind of concern that comes up. So all through this report, I, I've, I've adopted sort of a, a principle of trying to present either the position of Huawei or, or in some cases, the Chinese government in the most favorable light before sort of raising it, but there are still concerns, right? Just to, to try and, and be fair to, to what the other side's arguments would be so that the reader can come to their own decision. And to be fair from my perspective, I think that's actually what makes it such an excellent report. My, my question there was pretty loaded. So. You know, within the rule of law space, so one of the things that I, I, I spent about, this is where I spent a lot of time digging through, and I would be lying if I said that I am now a scholar of Chinese law. That is not the case. I've just spent months reading legal journals and talking with lawyers who operate in China. And so one of the, the first things that was fascinating is I didn't appreciate the translation difficulties that simply arise in the variation between rule of law and rule by law. So we have very particular conceptions in North America and the West more broadly about rule of law and rule by law. And rule of law is, you know, where everyone is subject to roughly equivalent laws, including the government. Rule by law is where government can use the law to, to sort of force its way through. And there are parts of government that will be kept free from equivalent legal decisions. But when you actually go through the Chinese process, as a number of scholars have noted, rule by law Will, depending on the translation process you go through, actually translates to rule of law. So you can get into situations where someone says, you don't have rule of law, you have rule of law, which is not helpful in a discussion. So I think it's helpful to contextualize because I think that in some cases, Chinese scholars who are trying to engage, there is an actual variation in, in understanding of the language. And so I think we need to start by saying, let's open up the discourse to figure out what our actual terms are with one another so we can try and have more productive discussions. China's done a great deal to improve its legal education, but all of this is happening in China as 
the party seems to be moving towards seeing law and obedience to law as one of many ways of maintaining the, the party structure. And so as a result of that, we know that the party is substantively, the senior levels of the party are substantively free from legal introspection. The national security apparatus is largely free of legal introspection. The military is largely free of legal introspection, which isn't to say the rule of law or the rule by law is never applied, but rather it only occurs when um, a more senior or more powerful part of the government says this element is now subject to law. And so we've seen President Xi's pretty routine corruption investigations. And on the one hand, you can say, haha, the, the, the law is working, but it's also because the president has said that the, the rule of law is going to apply in certain domains. Now, why do I raise this? I mostly raise it because a lot of what I just said, people who are listening to this podcast are like, yeah, so all Chris is saying is that we can't rely on China, right? And the answer is yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. But part of what I'm trying to do in the report is spend a little bit of time to unpack it so that people know here are the reasons why, here are the steps as to why we get to that conclusion. Which means when you know the current um, head of, of Huawei says, you know, we will fight tooth and nail were we to ever be asked by the Chinese government to modify our products to facilitate national security processes. We can entirely take him at his word, right? We can be charitable and say, we believe that. It also won't matter. The only way that Huawei would ever be able to push back against a national security edict is if someone more senior in terms of power than China said, okay, Huawei gets to go ahead and fight this and win. Because otherwise, they're either not going to be able to fight in the first place, or they're predestined to lose. And much as in Canada, the United States, they have courts just like we do, where national security cases are kept very quiet um, for national security reasons, which we see as quite concerning when it's China doing it. And I'm sure they see as quite concerning when we do it. But nonetheless, we're not going to hear about it. And so really, we just, the rule of law is not something that's going to be very useful in the discussion about Huawei when it is China applying the law. And so any situation of law, as I argue in the report, is going to be a situation of politics, right? When will China be motivated to not interfere with Huawei's equipment? Well, while China is trying to expand economically abroad, it's also trying to invite foreign companies to come into China. And so if it's found to be applying the national security legislation to force modifications of products being made in China, then foreign capital is going to be less excited to dive into China because they're going to be worried about whether they're actually going to reap the benefits. Assuming so, they understand the risk. Assuming they understand the risk, yes. This is certainly a, a uh, broad and perhaps unfair assumption at the moment. But I, I think that, you know, I, I took it, I took that, that section of the report up seriously just to present this is going to be a matter of politics. And to make clear to anyone who is who's looking at this, who happens to be in parliament or, or advising parliament, stuff like that, these are the actual contours of what's going on. So if someone comes before parliament and says, well, don't worry, the rule of law means we won't have to do this. Well, no, not necessarily. And, and just to provide people with sort of a quick pushback to have a more nuanced and hopefully a, a more fruitful discussion. Right. So we've gone through the major sections of the report and you've provided like such a good overview. I, but again, I do really recommend that that people read it. I just have a couple of, of final questions to ask you just in like what you think in terms of having done this research for two years. It's a very ambitious project. And, and again, I congratulate you for it. But I guess having done all this work, what remains your biggest concern about Huawei in Canada, if, if anything? I think that to be honest, my 
my number one biggest concern is that, so I've tried, even in, even in our discussion, I've tried to frame this as these are issues that apply to Huawei and other places too. And we need to build systems to keep us generally safe. So I think that one, there's a serious risk that well-intentioned individuals and parties and so on and so forth say, okay, so we're going to develop a Huawei solution. And I don't think we have a Huawei problem per se. We have a cybersecurity crisis that is married with, we don't as a country quite know how to engage with China right now. And so a lot of the concerns we have about Huawei, I'm sure if another Chinese company comes to equivalent influence in Canada, and it could be TikTok or WeChat or you know another company in a few years, we would be having almost the same discussions just with slightly different nuances. So we need a strategic response. And in the case of 5G, that means that we need Industry Canada involved. That means we need to think about intellectual property in a more serious way as, as a country. That means we need to think about security more comprehensively. And we have to think about what it means to trade with a growing superpower who is increasingly belligerent and as the parliament has, has recently come to a conclusion on, is engaged in, in practice of genocide. So what do we want to do? And I think if we try and say, okay, well, here's how we fix the trade issue. And then we ignore all the other stuff. We're not going to actually resolve the broader problems we have. And so we need to, as a government, and ideally not just the government, but including well-intentioned experts outside of the government, not necessarily saying it's me, there's lots of people who are a lot smarter on every one of these individual issues than I am but they should be brought together to actually build a Canadian brain trust to think up what we need to do to respond more broadly, which will then apply to Huawei. It'll apply perhaps in some way to Chinese social media. It might apply to Canadian companies trying to make their way into China, but we need to think about this more carefully. And the debates in Canada around China and Huawei, some of them are still very good. I don't want to dismiss all of them, but increasingly they are very one-sided and don't really provide a broader context of what the policy options are, what the issues are, and what the cost of solutions might be, which is, I think, the other thing that we need to think through. You know, when we build this strategy, it, it doesn't mean that Canada and Canadians inherently you know, get handed roses at the end of the day. We might have some difficulties, and, and that might be an implication of the strategy. But we need to think through those things as opposed to just tactically saying, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this and hope that all of our tactical maneuvers work because tactics on their own do not strategy make. I mean, I think that's such an important point that you're making about this kind of, I mean, I hate the term whole of government. Some people call it holes in government. I think I'm taking that from Steven Sademan. But the fact is, as you say, this we need this kind of broader strategic approach. And actually, I just want to push you on that a little bit more because, you know, when I was reading this, I'm like, this isn't just about 5G. This is about our foreign policy. This is about other issues. But I was thinking, really, this is a useful document for drawing lessons from the 5G experience and thinking about the next technologies that are coming, that may be coming from authoritarian countries that we need to deal with. There really is so much. And I'm wondering, is that a wrong approach? Is it wrong to copy and paste the lessons of 5G onto future strategies for dealing with technology in this way? Yeah, so when I got to the end of this report, uh, I sort of had the same impulse that you did. I'm like, this is a case study as much as it is anything else. Exactly. But, and so I, I think that there are lessons to be drawn. I mean, I, I, I think some of them may be particular to the technology and critical infrastructure sector. So, you know, providing information assurance for crop imports, eh, not quite the same thing. But nonetheless, I think that 
my hope is that the last section of the doc, like major section, section eight, my hope is that someone could go through it and see, okay, here are some, and it's, it's framed as elements, not a comprehensive 5G strategy. Here's some elements of a Canadian strategy to foreign policy, industrial affairs, intellectual property, trade, and security. And here's some of the things that we really need to be thinking about, and here's ways that they could start to interoperate. So the, the, the document is not presented as a fait accompli by any stretch. It is presented as, here are some things that we should consider seriously to address all of the aforementioned issues that we've talked about through, through our discussion in a way that hopefully is a blended and overlapping approach. Now, I have absolute faith there are people in CSE, CSIS, GAC, ISAD, who have discrete problems with lots of different things. And that's phenomenal. No problems with them having issues with, with what I did. But ideally, this document serves as a, a place where everyone can disagree and get in a room and disagree and then come up with the actual strategies. Right. right? So it's a starting point. It's a blueprint. That, that is my, I mean, there's certain things I definitely hope get taken up because I feel very strongly about them. I'm not so egotistical that I have the solutions, right? I'd like to imagine I have a few. I think um, you've got plenty, to be fair. But this should be a starting point. My hope is that a document like this, which is publicly cited, so it means that you can have people who have access to classified information. They don't have to worry about like blowing anything by talking about what's in this. And similarly, people from trade, people from academia, NGOs, they can all get together. And so my hope is that they do it and they can do it. And we can now have these focused discussions around how does technical security intersect with trade? How does it intersect with intellectual property? And I think that a document like this starts to showcase all of the stakeholder communities that need to be involved and can be. I think that, you know, people who have spent time looking at, at domestic and foreign policy issues in Canada, they'll go through this and I'm sure they immediately have, oh, this group and that group and this group and that group. And we're a geographically large country, but in terms of a population, pretty small. And so it's not hard to get these sorts of people in, in a sequence of, of, I guess, now virtual rooms to discuss these issues and start working towards actual strategies. I know people in GAC are hard at work. I know people in CSC are hard at work, so I don't want to diminish their work. But hopefully this means that it isn't just internal to government. It could be a more useful cross-government and intra and extra-government discussion as well. There's absolutely so many questions I could ask you. I will point out to listeners that you actually talk about what other countries are doing and the fact that the U.S. has a bunch of committees, that there's a lot more transparency about the discussions. Uh, unfortunately, I want to leave that to another day, perhaps, and, and a discussion about, about this. Uh, but the point I want to end on is, is the first point you actually make in the paper, where you say communication systems are inherently political. They connect some groups, but not others, are deployed unevenly and have historically been used to tilt the balance of geopolitical conflicts and power. And I, I loved that line. I love that beginning because I think in Canada, we don't necessarily have that view generally. We don't think of, you know, communications technology as being political unless we're thinking about paying our bills uh, to Rogers or Bell, which are exorbitant, but again, an issue for another day. So I guess this idea, noting that, technology is political. You know, I, I think you're right, but I think everything you've just 
said in this podcast really sums up that point. Can you, so can you explain maybe what you mean by technology is political and what that means for how we're looking at these issues and maybe some of the questions that we should be asking? Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is not a, a new concept by any stretch. Technology is imbued with biases, hopes, fears, failings. Some of them are deliberate, some of them are accidental. Why is 5G, why is Huawei a concern? Because of power, in part. There is a concern that a, a Chinese vendor could tilt the long-term or, or relatively long-term in our lives balance of power because whoever can access, whoever can control communications really has a privileged position economically and strategically in a contemporary neoliberal global environment. So I, I think that many of the concerns, if we were to peel back, why are we quote unquote concerned about Huawei? Why are we scared about 5G? It's because there's a possibility and a pretty real one of rebalancing longstanding perceived truths of power and who has it, who's manufacturing these technologies and thus we can trust them and they're safe. And that's what it, it really comes down to. And I think every one of the issues that I touch on from intellectual property to commercial espionage, to trade, to monopolies, to technical security, to politics and, and foreign affairs, these, as I've cast them, admittedly as a political scientist, are all issues of power. And that is the reason why Huawei and China are so concerning, I think, is because there is an implicit understood state of affairs that the world may be changing in a meaningful and substantive way. And part of why we don't have a strategy in this country is because I don't think the Canadian government knows quite what to do, nor frankly do a lot of other Western governments. And that's where the anxieties are from. We don't know how to chart course forward. And that's why I think it's so important to start building that strategy. It won't be perfect. It won't be guaranteed to work. We'll have to revise it. That's the way that these things operate. But at least it will be a touchstone upon which we can get some sense of balance and security. And from there, hopefully we can more effectively and comprehensively address both 5G and Huawei, but more broadly, how Canada is going to chart itself in the world where it's harder to trust our closest allies than we thought it would be. And middle powers seem to need to band together and somehow work in a coordinated fashion, but we're still trying to figure that out. Chris, I think it's a wonderful note to end on. So I just want to thank you for joining us, walking us through this report, bringing up all these interesting issues and passionately making the case for a, a more comprehensive strategy. I strongly suspect this is music to a lot of people's ears. So thanks again. And we hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.